Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a mm, real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into the one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug and play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point of sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theathletic, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theathletic to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash theathletic. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. The race is on, and Max Verstappen gave a home crowd what they came for with victory in the Dutch Grand Prix ahead of George Russell. But was Mercedes denied a shot at victory by questionable strategy and a suspiciously timed Alpha Tauri retirement? I'm Ed Straw, and joining us to answer those questions and many more are Scott Mitchell Mount and Mark Hughes. Well, Scott, how was Zandvoort? If memory serves, you weren't there last year. It seems like it was even more orange than the first year back. Yep, yeah, uh, you, your memory is correct. I did not attend the Dutch Grand Prix last year, so I was very excited. It's my first time at Zandvoort for, for any category. Um, and it didn't disappoint in terms of the the local support. The I think the standout moment for me was on was actually on Saturday morning getting the, the, the shuttle in and driving along the road uh, that runs along the uh, the beachfront and it's about quarter to nine in the morning, something like that. And the there's, there's the actual sea, but then there's just the sea of orange, even that early in the morning, just making their way towards the circuit. It's uh, It was an incredible sight and really sort of set the tone for the rest of the weekend. To be honest... It's been pretty mad since Thursday. An amazing atmosphere and a great example of um, just how spectacular it can be in a good way when um, when a, when partisan support shows up for its driver. Yeah, it always makes the race a bit more special. And Mark, how's things? And did you manage to resist the temptation to lob a flare onto the track? Yes, although um, I, I did sneak a pair of flared trousers in and uh, got away with it. Yeah, but he was also <laughs> responsible. Was it you? I heard it was you that was bringing smuggling in the pigeons that were causing all the problems as well, Mark. No, no, the the pigeons uh, weren't me. That's um, that's an incorrect rumor. 
bold from you, Scott, to ask a pigeon question again after yesterday. Yeah, I, uh, I tried to. I tried very sincerely to ask Lando Norris and Daniel Ricciardo about it after qualifying, and um, it descended into farce. And in fairness, I may have played a key part in that because I then massively joined in the jokes. <laughs> Nobody likes pigeons near the apex of a corner, but fortunately, they largely kept out of the way. Well. We're going to have to start off with the conspiracy theories that have emerged. That's all about the virtual safety car caused by Yuki Tsunoda's stoppage during the race. We've had plenty of questions from the Race Members Club about this. Chris Parrott asks, can you please explain why there's nothing sinister about a perfectly timed VSE caused by Alpha Tauri that perfectly aids a Red Bull driver to keep the lead he would otherwise have lost? George Willis asks, how many coincidences add up to conspiracy? Pointing to the Tsunoda incident in the race and Sergio Perez is off at the end of Q3. And Sander Van Holten asks what was going on with Sonoda and should he have been able to restart the car when something was wrong or should he have been stopped right away? Can the FIA actually monitor whether the seatbelts are tightened properly? The whole situation seemed very unsafe. Now, I've lumped together a bunch of Sonoda-related conspiracy questions there, Mark, but can you explain exactly how this played out and the impact it had on the race? Yeah, so um, as things were... um Max was leading, but it's still got to make a pit stop. And the, uh, the the two Mercedes of Lewis Hamilton and George Russell um, were one stopping and already made their stop. And Max wasn't far enough clear of them because they had really good pace on the hard tyres to um, have emerged uh, still in the lead. He was going to come out in third place. And we were then going to presumably be treated to the... Um, the spectacle of Max chasing them down and trying to get past both Mercs before the end. Um, but what happened was uh, Sonoda made his routine pit stop, uh, went out, felt something was wrong with the car, was pulling pulling to one side, and he assumed that a wheel hadn't been tightened. Uh, so he pulled to the side, and you know, they, he undid his belt, or he began to undo his belt, he loosened his belt, preparing to get out, he'd switched it off. Um, the team were looking at the data that they could see and there was, there was nothing suggesting that the, there was a problem with the wheels. Um, they were all loaded up, um, you know, as they should have been in the, the, the few corners that he'd done. And so they, they suggested that um, he started up again and bring it back to the pit so they could have a look at it and stick another set of tyres on and he would try again. And so that's what he did. And uh, as he left, he, he was reporting that there's something odd with the car still, um, and something odd at the rear, possibly the diff. And so he was then instructed to pull it off to the side again. And at that moment, the VSC came out, um, which meant that it would give uh, Verstappen the perfect opportunity for a very time-cheap Second pit stop, um, which meant he no longer would exit behind the Mercs. He would um, exit still in front of them. And given that uh, Red Bull and AlphaTauri are associated teams, of course, it was um, suspicious. It was, it was deemed as suspicious by quite a few, um, not not just fans, but um, you know people in the in the paddock as well. Um, but when you look at it, it would have had to have been um, the when. It, if it was a phantom problem and not real, um, uh, there would have been no problem apparent with the car. And if you go in cockpit and watch Sonoda and listen to the car as it pulls away from that second stop, there is clearly something very, very wrong with the car by the sounds it's making. So um, 
Unless I've got some special self-destruct mechanical button in there, I, I really don't think. I think it was nothing more than unfortunate uh, coincidence with the timing. And um, they do say you shouldn't um, uh, assign to conspiracy what is more easily explained by incompetence. And I think this is this is what happened. It was just a um, a misdiagnosed problem in the first place, which caused a little bit of confusion. With the team, and um, yeah, he was sent back out on his ways after his belts had been tightened, and um, yeah, with, with a what was uh, a serious mechanical problem at the rear end, as Yuki said, probably the diff at a second attempt at a diagnosis, and no, the FIA has got no way of monitoring how tightly the belts are uh, tightened. I think probably Sonoda gave it away a bit by saying over the radio several times that his belts needed tightening and then spending about 30 seconds having them tightened probably made it fairly obvious so that the monitoring system is uh, very rudimentary in, in that case. But Scott, obviously you looked into this and you were hearing what people were saying in the paddock. As Mark has explained, a lot of circumstantial uh, evidence, but nothing actually tangible there, is there? No, exactly. It's um, I understand exactly why it looks so suspicious. Um the the circumstances alone the the fact that nothing was really well explained afterwards either by driver or or by team uh, but ultimately i think uh, first of all what mark said uh, if it's easily explained by incompetence i think that is part of it um and i do think the mishandled nature of it is is um is not to be underestimated. I think there's also perhaps an element of Sonoda's testimony not being considered particularly reliable by the team. After all, he's already misdiagnosed the problem once by feeling by by saying that the 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 wheel might be loose. Um, so as he comes back to the pits, I'm not sure their priority is to listen to him saying, "I think the diff's broken." Um, Plus, it's also the sort of thing, if it legitimately wasn't showing up on the data, which they said it wasn't, then maybe they would need to have the car in front of them and witness it pull away to to see something or hear something. And maybe there was something in the data that did show up after that pit stop. I understand that it all sounds very convenient and coincidental, but sometimes that's what these things are. And I think the biggest the biggest reason for why this isn't an act, a malicious act of manipulating the the race's outcome is simply what was at risk what 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 was the risk of doing so versus what was the reward the reward for doing that was to win a race for verstappen that he was all he was going to win anyway and the the reward was a, a, what an extra few points not even an extra few points because it wouldn't have changed the outcome in a championship he's absolutely dominating versus the risk of being thrown out of the championship completely. It, it just doesn't make any sense to, to to truly believe that that is what happened. I think if you were going to uh, use your junior team to cause a, a, a safety car or some such, you'd probably do it in, say, an Abu Dhabi 21 type situation rather than in a slightly less significant <laughs> race like this. So I think that is a, a fairly... Uh, a fairly compelling argument in in this case, but it's kind of the nature of things, isn't it? That that you get slightly uncertain answers, and then there's always the paranoia in the paddock from teams when something convenient happens. But yeah, it, it's one of those things where sure that the, some of the pieces might fit, but unless you have some clear evidence that there was something very very odd going on, then you you don't really uh, have any evidence. And yeah. This was going to be a race that uh, that Verstappen was probably going to win anyway. But Mark, 
on that topic, let's get on to the other big talking point, which was the decision by Mercedes to pit Russell, but not Hamilton, under the late safety car. That one was caused by Valtteri Bottas, but uh, that one was definitely no question about that one. He, he ground to a halt with uh, an engine problem, I think it was. Hamilton's furious about it because he slumped from first to fourth after being passed by Verstappen, Russell and Leclerc. So can you explain their thinking? And we should note we've had a few questions from the Race Members Club about this too, including from Jay Gannon, who asks, what in the world happened with Mercedes? So there's your question, Mark. Yeah, he was understandably angry um, in the heat of the moment, but... Um I think if you were able to ask him now, um, he, he would realise he was a victim of circumstance because had they um, had they stopped him, uh, he, he would have lost any chance of fighting for the lead as the leader because obviously Red Bull can respond to whatever he does. So he's got no chance of winning the race once he's surrendered track position to Verstappen. So he has still got a chance of winning the race if he holds track position over Verstappen, even though it's going to be very hard work on tyres which are going to be slower than Verstappen's if Verstappen stops, which, of course, he did. But um, there's no there's no particular downside to stop Russell from, you know, especially as he was pushing for it, to get onto a set of softs and thereby attack Verstappen. Now, the downside, of course, from the team's point of view, is that Russell was no longer there as a buffer between Hamilton and Verstappen, which he would have been had they not stopped him. But, you know, that's, that's it was impossible. To make. There, there wasn't a right decision to be made in, in that situation, uh, as it turned out. And you, you only know these things afterwards when you see what happened. And Verstappen's advantage on the on those tyres was such that he was a, easily able to pass and would have been able to do the same with Russell, I'm sure. Yeah, certainly that was Hamilton's initial complaint that his buffer was removed and he was frustrated to be left out while everyone else pretty much was on soft. So one thing we should say is that originally Mercedes intended to leave them both out and it was actually Russell who questioned it a bit and said, look, these tyres aren't great, let's stop which did prove to be the right decision. Now, you could argue that was him motivated by wanting to try and jump his teammate rather than thinking that was globally the best call for the team, but it was him who took the initiative on that. Scott, a question from Yanis van der Waal on this is, can we maybe conclude that making these kinds of calls are hard and made in an instance and therefore need a bit more kindness in judgment? I certainly think we can... Um, we. we, we we just need to make sure that we're respectful of the context. I think if you're, you can still be critical of it and say it's it's the wrong decision or it should have been handled slightly differently. But while acknowledging the fact that it it there was a certain logic, as long as there is a certain logic applied, and I think that is the case here, the keeping Hamilton out um, to maintain track position, especially initially when they kept both of them out, that it, it it made it made sense that you know you can argue it either way. Um, but there was certainly an argument to make for what Mercedes did. Now, I thought where I thought they were wrong was then splitting them because I think by that point it was. I don't. I think you're just sort of. You're definitely ceding conceding defeat with one car, and that's Hamilton. And with the other car, I think you're kind of just rolling the dice and hoping that something happens so that both your cars don't don't slip down. But. I don't know, but I just I just kind of felt like do I either pit them both for softs or keep them both out for mediums and have the buffer and try and make life as hard for Verstappen as possible. I thought the normally the splitting of the strategy, especially earlier in a stint or at the start of a race or something like that, is a really interesting way to go and can be very useful. 
Um, but I don't know. It felt like a bit of a halfway house in 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 this scenario. And maybe the outcome would have been no different. Maybe the outcome would have been even worse. But I feel like the best chance to win that Grand Prix wasn't to pit anyone to softs. It was to to, to go for the buffer, give Hamilton a lap or two to try and put the heat back into the the, the mediums and go from there. I might be wrong. Um, but I also think that what Mercedes did was um, was slightly wrong as well. To come back to the original question, that kindness in judgment, we're always judging things to kind of the highest standard. And there's always the underpinning that, yeah, this is all really, really hard. It's a really challenging, cutting-edge elite sport. So, of course, it's difficult. So, it's within that context that if we say, yeah, Mercedes ultimately didn't get it right. They'd have got a better result overall had Hamilton stopped as well. But... Just because that's a mistake doesn't mean it's some terrible, condemnable mistake, should we say, in, in in this particular case. Next question from Tom Miller, Mark, who says, why have Mercedes been so much more competitive this weekend compared to Spa? This is a track, a high downforce track, where you can run the car very low. And uh, when the car, when the global requirement is, is for a, a low ride height to maximise performance, that sort of track layout, the Mercedes is in a very, very happy place in its aero map and works very well. Um, as soon as you get to a place where you need to run a slightly higher ride height, um, somewhere like Spa, um, the Mercedes is in a very unhappy place in its uh, aero map. So this isn't Mercedes is back or Mercedes is now on form. This is just Mercedes has gone to a track that suits it and will be going to other tracks that won't suit it. That's just how this car is. It's just Mercedes being Mercedes, isn't it? That is just basically what their season has descended into the peaks are really high especially as they've improved the car and the um the lows are really low and then sometimes they're a little bit in the middle but that is just sort of i just come to take that as mercedes season really is um you can probably guess how they're going to be based on the, the 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 track layout and then it's just a case of how close to those highs and lows are they actually going to be in reality and just a question for Mark Bildner as well. Mark, you've already half answered this, but it was about the decision to put Verstappen on hards. Uh, Mark asks if it was a rare strategic mistake. By the time they made the choice, it seemed to me they were ready for mediums. And by then, the gap to Mercedes had narrowed considerably. The um, the advantage of the medium over the hard wasn't really there. The hard was a much better tyre than everybody apart from Mercedes and Alpine had uh, forecasted. Um, the, the general feeling before the race was the hard's a waste of time, isn't it good putting that on? And therefore, that's what pushed everybody towards a two-stop strategy. But the track grip ramped up very, very quickly. And once it did that, the hard was working very well. Um, there was no particular advantage in putting a medium on over a hard at, at that point. In fact, um, they were probably getting close enough to put a set of softs on, which is what they would have done had the VSC not come, they would have run long enough to put a set of softs on. So in that sense, the um, although the, the uh, VSC bought them track position, which was the most important thing, it actually, you know, if, you, if you're looking at the conspiracy, it actually came out several laps too early. So it was, it was a bit of a rubbish um, planned conspiracy, if so, because uh, to do it perfectly, you would have needed um, Sonoda to, to have his pretend problem several laps later, to, so that, to enable Max to get onto the softs and get the free pit stop. 
It's a bit like that rubbish conspiracy by whoever it was that threw that second flare onto the track at the start of Q... No, at the start of the final runs in Q3, which, if it had brought out the red flag, had it not rolled off the track, would have prevented Verstappen taking pole, which would have, which would have been a tremendous own goal by uh, whichever presumably home fan threw the, uh, threw the orange flare. But uh, a weekend for uh, questionable conspiracies, evidently. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Well, let's talk Ferrari now, Scott. Chris Parrott asks if Ferrari are now on Mercedes' overall pace and what do you make of Mercedes' form in general? It's certainly a concern for Ferrari that they've got this um, level of race pace at the moment. It's three Grand Prix in a row where the Ferrari just has not been as competitive on the Sunday as expected. Go back before the summer break, we saw it in Hungary, we saw it last weekend in Belgium to a degree and we saw it again here. And I think, um, I think when we're on the circuits that are like Mark was describing before, I think the Mercedes might be the. Well, I think the Mercedes is the second fastest race car behind the behind the Red Bull. The question is, obviously, it's a bit more erratic as a qualifying car. Um, so I think uh, I think Ferrari's in trouble if it doesn't get on top of that. It doesn't sound like Ferrari really understands why that is, whether it's setup related because they're not getting the maximum out of the car, or whether they've just not developed as much as they need to, and that they're starting to fall behind in terms of pure potential. Um, I think that remains to be seen and it's something they need to get on top of. They will, at least after Monza, which is a unique challenge in itself, have a few weeks to try and get on top of that before we go into the flyaways that complete the season. Um, but for, uh, for Mercedes, I think I think this is sort of a bit back, a bit more like where they were at in Hungary. It makes a bit more sense. It, it, it confirms their their progress and what they're learning and what they're trying to improve. So I think this just shows that Belgium being track specific was a very low, as I was saying before, and then you come here track specific, it's much more of a high. But I think if you take the general trend over the last three months, it's clearly trending upwards for Mercedes. And this was the closest that they've come to looking like winning a Grand Prix. I know that George Russell led for so long in Hungary, but this felt like a much more authentically competitive showing on the Sunday. Yeah, certainly once you get into the race, Day, the Mercedes tyre use seems to put them on on good terms with with Ferrari. Mark, a question from Thomas Knights is about Carlos Sainz. Only lost time in the first pit stop. We'll talk about his pit stops in a moment. But after that, did not create a gap to Norris and really struggled compared to Leclerc. Just struggled with balance today. Probably his worst race in terms of pace this year. So where was Sainz's pace? Yeah, it just um, it started unraveling in qualifying, didn't it? He was just a tenth down in qualifying, and that dro- just dropped him behind. Um, Talking a bit more quietly here because I think Carlos is in the room next door, so he's probably listening. Um, it, it, it he was very um, 
very soon in the race, he was managing um, overheating rear tyres. So whether that's tyre preparation, whether it's pressures, whether it's driving style, I don't know. But that the, the Ferrari was on the cusp of having that problem and he found it earlier than Charles. And uh, he was having to manage his pace from probably as early as lap three. He was having to really manage his pace and you could see him falling steadily away from um, Max and Charles in those early stages. And then, of course, the the, the rubbish pit stop with when only three wheels were ready and then he just... Yeah just cascaded horribly downwards from there, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's one of those days. But Scott, that first pit stop of sciences. Now, Mattia Bonotto's explanation for that was that the call was made too late for the pit crew to get ready. Do you think that's correct? Because the one thing that stood out to me is they had three tyres completely ready and the rear left was nowhere near. So that suggests to me that I, I can't imagine the rear left fundamentally takes like 20 seconds longer than the others to be there. So... Are you buying that, or do you think it was just some other error? Uh, it's hard to know. Um, I don't really know what. Um, I they they haven't of all the errors they've made this year, they haven't made this one before, have they? Not this year. They haven't made this one for a few years. This is the Eddie Irvine error, isn't it? Mm. Eddie Irvine was there to, to watch <laughs> it as well. He was he was at the track today. Maybe that's why <laughs> they they got they maybe they got wistful. <laughs> um, no, I I don't know. It's it's so. It's hard to judge. I might need to default to something we've said before, which is that Ferrari's getting better at admitting when things have not gone to plan and admitting they need to improve, but then sort of stop short of actually saying that that means that something's, you know, a mistake's been made or that there's a problem that needs addressing. And I wonder if that might be a little bit at, at, at play here, where instead of just holding their hands up and saying, yeah, there was, there was a blunder, just, there's just this kind of almost after-the-fact rationalisation of it. it. It sounds to me like it, it's just a just, just, just a mistake. If you can get, I mean, I don't know. Am, am, am I missing something? Is the left rear more complicated to get the tyre to than the front left? No, I don't think so. It sounds like a communication error. I mean, we've seen when this happened at Red Bull at Monaco. It was 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 it there? Yeah, there was um. A radio communication problem. Um, it could be something like that. It could just be as simple as someone's earpiece is not working or something like that, and the others are. And you know, he's just been. It was a very, very late call. The, the the call to to bring him in was in response to them seeing Red Bull getting ready to bring Perez in, and that that was going to be an undercut threat. So they 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 called it very late as Carlos was coming into the last corner. But even so, um, it's getting towards the window. You would think everybody would be primed and ready just in case. Ultimately, when it comes to that late call, although clearly there was some mistake made, the later the call, the more chance there is of any weakness in the system catching you out, shall we say. So I'm sure they'll look into that. The The unsafe release for Carlos Sainz that he had on his second stop, that gave him a five-second penalty, which is actually really costly in the end because it dropped him from fifth down to eighth. That was a more interesting one because Mattia Bonotto complained about that on the grounds that they didn't feel it was an unsafe release because they let him go. Then he had to kind of take a much more acute steering angle to get round the McLaren uh, pit box. And that led him to go into an anti-stall, which meant Ocon was there. And that made it an unsafe release. So that their grievance was that in trying to make it safe because of the tightness of the pit lane, it became unsafe and it wasn't their fault. What do you think, Scott? Are you, are you buying that? Or do you think Ferrari just has to take it on the chin? 
Uh, I'm not sure. A little bit of both, maybe, because that pit lane is really, really small. Like, Tanvot's not, in, in size terms, that Zanvot just isn't fit for purpose as a modern Grand Prix venue. So I'm, I'm actually surprised, having now seen it for myself, um, because I knew all about this last year when it was being talked about, but having seen it for myself, I'm surprised there weren't more pit lane related problems. Um, and I'm surprised there weren't last year and I'm surprised there weren't this year because it is really bad. So bad, I think in F2 and F3, you're not allowed to make a pit stop under the safety car, are you? That's how that's how problematic the the pit lane can be. So I, I have sympathy. I think there is certainly an element of that. But then I remember I, I spoke to Andreas Seidel about this, um, the McLaren team boss on Saturday evening. And he said that the nature of the pit lane meant that the teams had discussed this. Um, in advance about you know taking extra precautions making sure that there were no silly risks taken and that kind of thing so if everyone's already sort of got a, a heightened state of awareness in terms of being really careful because of the pit lane then if you do have an incident like this I, I guess you're kind of banged to rights aren't you even if you take into account the mitigating factor of yeah it is a really really awkward situation that is kind of why everyone's meant to be taking more care yeah, it's the, it's the nature of the beast, really, isn't it? The pit lane is a bit tight there, really. I think that's quite questionable. But, yeah, that's going to be a problem for as long as Formula 1 is coming back to Zanvoort. Well, let's take a quick diversion now to catch up with Grid Rival, everyone's favourite fancy motorsport game that includes the race's own league. A dismal 684 points for me this week that I don't really want to talk about. You must have beaten me, Scott. Uh, I, I Yeah, I did, but I think we should talk about your dismal points, score. Did you forget to set your team again? Uh Sort of. It was mostly set, but I was one driver light who I'd uh, I'd, I'd failed to, to get a replacement for, which is extremely frustrating. So I had Verstappen, Leclerc, Sainz, Alban and Williams. I had Alban and Williams from uh, my spa punt. Didn't work quite so well this weekend, but still a reasonable run for, for Alban. But yeah, it was... I think regardless of whether I had the extra person, it was uh, it was not a good week for me, whatever happened. I don't really take part in this bit, but I like it because um, it, it it always seems to be um, you, Scott, um, treating Ed as though he's, he's, he's missed his homework again and, uh, and Ed having to come up with a, an awkward explanation as to why his homework's not in on time. It's well, quite, I think that's got the dog ate it. I think, the that, dog ate I think it. it's absolutely valid because I, from all of that waffling from Ed, I think the answer to my question, did you forget to set your team again, is yes. Yeah, it sounds like... <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I did. I absolutely destroyed you this weekend. It was an okay week. Uh, it was a decent week that would have been a good week had I not uh, rolled the dice and uh, bet on Daniel Ricciardo as a one-off. I quite liked where McLaren looks after practice. I thought that Ricciardo might do a decent job. I made him my talent driver, so my double points driver, and was... Um, comprehensively punished for my misplaced confidence because I don't think I could have I genuinely do not think there was a worse weekend for Ricardo uh, this season so what an absolute waste it was last week I forgot to set a talent driver and I've barely scored more points this week having set one in Daniel Ricardo. I must admit I, next year I'm I'm working on a much much better assault on uh, on grid rival I, I've ma- I've mastered the the nuances of it now except the one about making sure you set your team. And I'm going to try and bring some of my fancy Premier League form from the, from this season to, to grid rival next year. 
One person who has been utterly on top of their team this year is Jackie78958103, who's retaken the lead in our league with a team consisting of both Ferrari drivers, Verstappen, Russell, Mick Schumacher as double points, talent driver, and Mercedes. But unlike the World Championship fight, it's still very close at the top of that league. That one's going to go all the way to Abu Dhabi. Grid Rival is still open for sign up, so you'll have plenty of time to consider your team choices during the August break. So download the Grid Rival app or visit the website so you can get in. Involved. The link is in the episode description for this podcast. Mark, let's talk Alpine. After Fernando Alonso's qualifying difficulties, he lost time to Perez on his final Q2 lap and failed to make the, the top 10 due to the, the, the traffic. McLaren did seem to have the upper hand and Lando Norris was ahead for most of the race, yet he ended up seventh behind Alonso with Esteban Ocon ninth. That's another four points added to Alpine's advantage. Can you explain how Alonso managed to gain so many places and in particular how he got ahead of Norris? His um his pace was terrific actually and um he was particularly fast on the hard tire which they switched to um very early on. It, it wasn't that they were trying to um do a one stop necessarily but um they 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 were the other team that had worked out that the hard's actually going to be good when the, the track grip ramped up. And they pitted early just to get him in some clear air um, to, so that he could properly express the car's speed because it was much faster than the cars immediately ahead of him, the Alfa Tauri and the Aston Martin and things. So um, he got ahead of Norris because Lando took the opportunity of uh, the, the pit stop as they, um, the cars came through the pit lane. And under the safety car, and um, Fernando stayed out and uh, gained that position, and then defended very, very well. But actually, the the two cars, the McLaren and the Alpine, were probably quite closely matched this weekend. And uh, by rights, really, you know, Fernando should have been qualifying up around where Lando qualified seventh, eighth, that sort of area, and um, they would have uh, would have been having a ding dong regardless, I think. But it's um, yeah. It, it, but it does make you wonder just how much Alpine is relying on Fernando because, uh, you know, I mean, Esteban Ocon's a good driver, but he, he you know, he just had to, he, he did what the what the car should do, really. Um, and I think Fernando from um, 13th on the grid uh, did, did perform beyond uh, the, the, the par level for the car, if you like. And uh, that's that's what you need. That's what you need, you need that because they're, you know in, in racing there are days like that. There are days when things don't go ideally well, and you have to claw it back. And that's what he's brilliant at doing. And uh, it, it just shows how expensive that mistake was, and um, not not hanging on to him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not a not a great one. They're fortunate though that Daniel Ricciardo's in the in the second McLaren because that's making a big difference. Twenty four points now, Alpine's advantage over McLaren, and. Uh, they're pretty strong across a range of circuits. It's looking like a pretty tough battle for McLaren to win that one. So well done, Alpine, on that side of things, even if their contract business isn't so good. Scott, loads of pressure on Mick Schumacher. He started eighth but finished only 13th. But what went wrong for him? Um, he had, a uh, first of all, uh, lost a couple of positions on the uh, opening lap because he started on the medium tyres and lots around him were on the soft. But um, after that, it was uh, it was very much out of his control. He had a problem at his pit stop where the uh, front jack was not releasing. I think it, it lost him just over uh, six seconds. He was, so he was still in the top 10. He was in 10th place in, in the first stint and he was in the hunt for points. He thinks he could have finished 
inside the top 10. It took the Jackman multiple attempts to drop it because something wasn't working. And yeah, it was, um, it, it, instead, so it meant instead of sniping for points for the rest of the Grand Prix, Schumacher was just back in the, in the lower reaches of the midfield. And yeah, his, his race was done by that point, because unless something dramatic happens, you're not going to make up that many places um, purely on, on your own, unless you're driving one of the three or four fastest cars. Um, so it was a shame for Schumacher because he'd qualified really well. He'd done a much better job than teammate Kevin Magnussen in qualifying. And at a time where, you know, the chances of him being on the 2023 grid seem to be fading, I'm not saying that this would have, uh, you know, transformed Haas's opinion or anything like that, but it would, I felt like he deserved a bit of a, yeah, that's what I'm capable of result today. And I think he can still be proud of the weekend. And I think anyone paying attention to his weekend knows he's he's done well. But do you know what I mean? It's not the sort of... I feel like it's not the headline result that he really deserved a, uh, deserved a crack at. There's no guarantee he would have got it. But he deserved to... If he was going to lose a top 10 finish today, he deserved to lose it himself. Yeah, I think he deserves a lot of credit for getting himself into that position where he was running in the points because the Haas probably wasn't one of the five quickest cars. Chances are he'd have probably ended up around 11th if the race had played out, which would have been a really good result because that's what was in the car. So, yeah, good weekend for, for Schumacher. He was, he was pretty decent last time out as well, although it was slightly hard to judge the overall performance given Hass's struggle. So he's putting together a, a reasonable run, at least giving himself a, a chance. So he just needs to keep that up. Now, Mark, Aston Martin, more competitive weekend at Zandvoort. Lance Stroll ended up in his seemingly inevitable 10th place. Uh, Sebastian Vettel, of course, was buried down the order after he'd had that off in Q1, which led to his elimination, which was down to some dust pulled onto the track by Lance Stroll in a moment of irony. But why were Aston Martin a bit more competitive this weekend? I think two reasons. I think um, this, this this track is probably quite well suited in, in the same way that it is to the Mercedes. It's, um, it you know favours a, a low right height and, and plenty of downforce. Um, and uh, I think also... Um, they they are beginning to understand the car a bit more, and uh, yeah, I, it, I'm a little bit concerned about Sebastian's form ever since he announced his retirement. Haven't been clearly the faster Aston Martin driver up until that point. He's he's since then become clearly the slower Aston Martin driver. So yeah, I, I just just wonder a little bit about that. But uh, in terms of the, 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 where Aston is at, it's it's still not. A threat to uh, Alpine and not usually to McLaren either. But if McLaren has an off, an off day and they have a good day, yeah, it can be there or thereabouts. But it's not quite. It's just a probably a, a notch and a half away from um, being able to sort of get in the get in the hunt for best of the rest. And then, of course, that means they're struggling to score more than the odd point here and there, and that makes it very, very difficult to move up from their current ninth in the constructors' championship. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. 
Well, as always, we'll finish off with a blast of questions from the Race Members Club. We'll go to you first, Scott, with this from Oscar Robledo, who says, do the rules around pitting under the safety car and virtual safety cars need to be changed? And should F1 go to circuits where the pit lane is so tight, given the necessity for tyre stops? Um, I don't know. I, I don't know if, uh, I guess he's asking if we should have like, you know, like a closed pit lane and that kind of thing. Uh, I don't know. I've, I've never really given it that, that much thought. I, I often find that we're so used to safety cars now, real or virtual that sort of become part and parcel of it. So it just doesn't offend me that much. It's just, it's the variable that can happen. Um, I don't see it really is anything more of a variable than if you can have you know if you can have weather that can strike at a, a, an impromptu time or you know a bad um bit of traffic or anything and i know you can argue that some of these are more natural than than, than more more of a natural variable than safety cars but i i don't it doesn't offend me enough to 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 think that it definitely needs changing but i would be interested to to hear a more detailed and reasoned analysis of whether or not closing the pit lane during safety car periods would be problematic because off the top of my head I can definitely remember that being suggested it would not be a good idea but honestly as I sit here right now and we record this I, I can't think what that argument would be can is there any reason that we couldn't close the pit lane well it'll always cause some problems for some more than others certainly under a safety car virtual safety car you could argue you could close the pit lane yeah it might force someone to delay a pit stop or, or whatever but I don't think there's any necessarily any reason why you wouldn't for that but for a safety car if you closed it you could depending on the timing of stops around it because you're closing up the field that could put someone at a disadvantage you're just randomizing it in a different way if you do that though aren't you you you, you somebody will be disadvantaged by that um just as somebody else would have been disadvantaged by being open yeah, it's just one of those things. The better thing is to avoid having safety cars and virtual safety cars, but they are a fact of life now, unfortunately. Next question for you, Mark, and we've done very well to get this far into a podcast after this weekend without mentioning Oscar Piastri, but he's going to get involved now. Colin Merton's question is, a lot has been written about Daniel Ricciardo's inability to get on with the McLaren, it being difficult to drive and incompatible with Daniel Ricciardo's style. What is Oscar's style and should it gel better? Is he worried at all that he might suffer Daniel's fate? Um, Oscar is incredibly smooth. He's been described as Prost-like, actually, in terms of his um, inputs. Um, very easy on the tyres. If there's been a criticism of the past, it's that he has, his style hasn't been aggressive enough in qualifying. Um, um, but once it was pointed out, he immediately corrected it, and you know he's, he's very, very adaptable. And he's also quite technical, and I think um, that that's if you do encounter. Um, a problem dovetailing a car with your style, it's incredibly helpful to have the insight, uh, the technical insight in, into what it is you're trying to do and why you're trying to, to drive it the way it's asking to be driven. And um, I think this is, is probably very well equipped for that. And you're going to the challenge with his eyes wide open, of course. Scott, next question from Tom Miller. How has Otmar Safnauer's credibility been affected by the events involving Alonso and Piastri? And is his position at Alpine under threat as a result? A lot of the comments he made to the media in relation to Piastri seem to betray a lack of knowledge of the contractual position. And Alonso's statement that he didn't even tell Safnauer he had signed for Aston Martin before it was announced seemed quite telling. Uh, I don't think um, I don't think Otmar's position should be um, 
at risk here. I think that would be unfair. I I have a degree of sympathy for him because I think he's also been the front man for a an absolute train wreck that he's not been directly responsible for. I I think um, Lauren Rossi, the Alpine CEO, should have been in um, in the Netherlands this week, uh, fronting up in the press conference, speaking to people and explaining how his organisation got this so badly wrong. Um, but I would be lying if I said that Otmar's uh, reputation hasn't been knocked this weekend in some way because ultimately he is the one doubling down on Alpine's attitude towards this. He's the one who was in front of the TV cameras last weekend calling Piastri's integrity into question. And I do get the feeling inside the paddock that there is um, there is a sense that uh, you know Ot- Ot- Otmar does know what he's doing and he knows what he's saying and there is a degree of dishonesty. Otmar, Otmar sat there in the press conference and said I you know I've never lied to you and I never will and I just I just in 25 years of being in Formula One he's never sat there and denied something that's the case I mean people that say in Brazil last year he sat there and said he wasn't going to be leaving Alpine uh, leaving Aston Martin to join Alpine and what look where he ended up a few months later so I I I, I don't think this is I don't think anyone from Alpine comes out of this looking particularly good let's put it that way Yes, and it's not been a great reflection on Alpine. There's lots you can read on the race website or indeed have a listen to our Piastri podcast from a few days ago for more on that. Mark, another question that touches on Piastri from James Bush, who says, on the subject of McLaren winning the battle for Oscar Piastri services, is there an argument to be made that he'd have actually been better off being in an Alpine next year? They appear to have produced a better car than McLaren, which also seems easier to drive, given the remarks from each team's set of drivers, plus Lando Norris has soundly beaten a driver with significantly more experience and pedigree than Ricardo. Given how talented Piastri is and how glittering his junior career has been, he would still ultimately be a rookie, going up a driver who will be reaching 100 F1 races next year. Yeah, I think there is a, there's got to be a concern about that. Um, and you'd say, you know, if you were a rookie, would you rather go up um, in a, a, a car which may or may not be faster next year, but this year, is you would say, is faster than the, the McLaren? Um, would you rather be in a faster car with a slower teammate or a, a slower car with a faster teammate? Well, that's an easy question to answer, isn't it? And I think um, there's a danger that that's um, he's, he's going to be in the slower car with the faster teammate. But he didn't really when when now that we know a bit more about it, thanks to the CRB, um, you know, you explaining so much detail, um, he didn't really have an option. Um, the, he, he was uh, he didn't have anything on offer that at the time that the, um, the McLaren offer was made. He he, he didn't have a, a valid contract with Alpine and. There was no um, solid commitment that he was going to be in an Alpine um, for you know another couple of years, and um, the prospect of driving a, a Williams at the back of the grid for two years, maybe, or um, getting into a McLaren, and given that he didn't have a valid contract um, and that they weren't showing uh, full commitment to him, I think um, he really didn't have uh, much of a decision to make. Yeah, Mark's Mark's touched on a a, a a misconception within this Piastri situation that I think is really important that is as clear as possible, which is that at this point Piastri hasn't chosen a, a McLaren twenty twenty three drive over an Alpine twenty twenty three drive. That seems to be how it's been boiled down to in its simplest terms. That's just not the case. He has turned down a two year loan spell at Williams 
with the uh, likelihood of an Alpine drive in 2025 and no guarantee of one before that for a drive at McLaren. And that's 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 a very different thing to be looking at, especially when it's an organisation that has spent the last few months me- uh, messing you around a bit on your contract and giving you a bunch of reasons to actually doubt how much they want you. So I'm not going to say much more than that because we have talked about this a lot in our Piastri podcast, but that is just a good opportunity to clear up a specific misconception there. Yeah, the moral of the story is if you want to say you've got somebody under contract, probably a good idea to use some of those many months when you should have got him under contract to actually do so. Scott, the next question is from Chris Parrott, who says, McLaren seem destined to lose P4 and the constructors to Alpine, given they're basically a one-man team. Is there any scenario where Ricardo doesn't even make it to the end of the season? Uh, I doubt it. Um, I think Ricardo is in until the end of the year. I think... Um, I also think the way it's going at the moment is Ricardo won't be costing McLaren fourth in the championship. It has been the case so far. Uh, and I wouldn't say that that necessarily negates the ineffectiveness of Ricardo's season and how poor it's been even compared to last year. Um, it's just a, a, a fact that as McLaren slips further and further away, this is just looking like something that Alpine is just out. It just out and out deserves to be to be fourth. Um, so, no, I, don't, I, I think Ricardo will be there and, and I hope he is because it would just be nice between now and the end of the season to see him be able to sign off from McLaren with some kind of high point um he he even mentioned after the race you know he really doesn't want to say goodbye finishing 17th and I don't think he's the kind of person who wants to walk away with his tail between his legs so here's hoping between now and Abu Dhabi we can have um he's not going to have a day of days like Monza again I'd be amazed if he does win a race this season I'd be amazed if he even gets into in into a podium contention at any point but hopefully a few more points finishes before the end of the year just so just so he doesn't it doesn't end as on, on the whimper that it's looking like right now. Yeah, and they're better off with the driver who's got the experience of the car doing what they can for him to pick up some points over the rest of the year than, than putting anyone else in there. Probably the more interesting question is whether McLaren get the services of Piastri a little bit early so he can do some FP1s. Omar Safnau has said that they're going to be discussing that in the coming week. So there is a possibility they might want to get shot of Piastri and let him join up with McLaren, probably in exchange for a little bit of cash that will offset uh, what they've lost with their unsuccessful bid to hold on to Piastri and what appears to be the money they're going to spend on recruiting Pierre Gasly, provided that all goes ahead. Mark, next question is from Mark Riley, who says, can we make any conclusions regarding the technical directive from SPA? Some recent articles have said as many as nine teams have employed a flexi-floor solution of some kind. With the pace of Red Bull in SPA and the quality turnaround in Zanvor and how Ferrari seem to have fallen back into the clutches of Mercedes, can we assume the RB18 is not one of the nine rumoured flexible cars? Oh, the, the, the Red Bull was. I mean, that, that was the method. It was That was the interpretation Red Bull had made. Um, on how to um, mount the floor, and it, it, it has did need to be changed for Spa. But as you could see, it's um, not had any effect and any um, negative effect on on its form. Um, so you w- it wouldn't necessarily have shown up at Spa because Spa is a track where you have to run the right height uh, quite high anyway. Um, it would more likely have shown up at. Zandvoort and at Zandvoort it was a competitive car it wasn't anything like as dominant as it had been at uh, Spa or, or even um, Hungara Ring uh, on, on race day but um, it's still a competitive car Ferrari's troubles began at the Hungara Ring which was before the uh, the, the, the the new tech directive came in they, they, they've 
something has happened in their development which has led it to have uh, trouble controlling the tire temperatures adequately. Um, and that was very, very apparent at, at Hungary, which is, you know, before Spa. Um, so, no, I, I, I actually don't think the tech directive has had a significant impact on the competitive order. I think all we're seeing is the the, the, the normal um, ebbs and flows of, of, of competitive order. Next question for you, Scott, from Yanis van der Waal. Max Verstappen extended his championship lead again. Do you, Mark and Scott, dare to make a prediction of which race he will be crowned champion? You can go first, Scott, with your prediction. Uh, whoa, how many races are there left? This is a long season. Um, I think he will win the championship with five, I'm going to say five races remaining. I can't remember which race that is. Is that Japan? That'd be Singapore, wouldn't it? No, Singapore. Singapore's six races. Oh, no, sorry. So it'd be five after. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, but I think Singapore. I'm going to go Singapore. That was going to be my answer as well. Mark, do we have a full house on Singapore with our crystal ball game? Oh, if you've gone Singapore, um, I'll go Austin. Uh, just being a, a contrarian. But yeah, whatever happens, it's going to be sealed quite comfortably with plenty of races to spare. Mark, question from Iris saying, whatever became of Aston Martin's cheeky new rear wing design, it doesn't seem like anyone has been eager to copy it yet. Oh, I think it would take quite a while to um, get that through manufacturing and, um, you know, test it and, and, and all that. But uh, there's also the matter of uh, cost caps. And um, it, may, it may just be that teams aren't really uh, interested in doing any more significant development like that on, on this year's car. Um, I wouldn't be surprised to see it copied before the end up. Yeah, it's certainly a very clever little interpretation. Again, it's not going to transform your car by seconds per lap, but it's a, a good intelligent way to recreate the end plate effect in a, in a limited way. Well, thanks for your insights, Scott and Mark. Head to therace.com. Don't forget the hyphen, as there's loads to read there, including Mark's race analysis, my driver ratings. And what have you, what have you got planned for tomorrow, Scott? Uh, I've got something on uh, Daniel Ricciardo's uh, struggles this weekend and a very, very frank assessment of his Zandvoort as in the context of a very disappointing season. So that, um, and there is also a piece, uh, a bit more of a detailed piece on Alpine's bungled handling of the Oscar Piastri contractual situation and what next for the team because it's been left red-faced by a process in which it was... uh, quite uh, amusingly accused of shilly-shallying by the CRB, which is just an absolutely phenomenal word that I have uh, probably been aware of, but never, ever, ever heard in my life, certainly not in an F1 context. Excellent. Pleased to get that word in. I would say to everyone, don't shilly-shally in downloading the race app, because that's a great way to consume the race's content. Also, check out our sister podcasts, including Bring Back V10s, and take a look at our video channel. We're off to Monza now, so stay with us on the Race F1 podcast for everything you need to know from the Italian Grand Prix. The Athletic.
As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.